Hello, everyone, and welcome to an extra special episode of the KingCast. We are dropping one of our favorite Patreon episodes into the main feed today, wherein we speak to an actual lawyer, Lindsay Travis, who has come onto the show to defend Andy Dufresne as though this were an actual court case. This is the sort of thing we're doing on the Patreon, by the way. You know, the the main episodes kind of follow a, a, a format that is tried and true, and we try to keep that the same as much as possible every week. But over on the Patreon, we're doing some really wild shit. In addition to stuff like this, over on the Patreon, you can get commentaries. We're doing interviews with people. We're, we're doing all kinds of shit over there. It doesn't follow the format of the main show, but it is Stephen King related. The way that the, this works is every Wednesday, normally every Wednesday, you get the main feed episode and then, then you have to wait a whole other week. But the way we do it is we have one main feed episode, then we have one Patreon episode going up every week. So that's double the amount of us bullshitting about Stephen King with uh, fun people. What have been some of your, your favorites? Well, I liked when uh, Britt Hayes came on and did a whole episode about the various appearances of boners in um, Stephen King's works. What about yours? One thing I really do like about the Patreon is that we kind of let our Dark Tower freak flag fly. So we, we've had some good stuff, like we've taken deep dives into the art of the Dark Tower books and ranked which our favorites are. We did that episode with Jermaine Lucier, and he's never let us forget about it. <laughs> yep. And uh, Can't frame yeah, a fucking we, poster to f- save his life, but God help him, he has some good art opinions. And uh, yeah, and we also do uh, commentaries for Stephen King movies, and we've had some great guests. We did Maximum Overdrive with acclaimed director Nacho Vigalondo. Uh, we did The Running Man with Steve Agee, who is now one of the stars of of uh, the Suicide Squad and the Peacemaker show that spun off from it. Uh, super funny guy, great dude. Uh, and then there's also the legendary commentary we did on Dreamcatcher. The Dreamcatcher commentary in and of itself is worth signing up for the Patreon, I think. It's fucking hilarious. There's no other way to put it. Uh, It's a complete disaster from top to bottom, but you really need to hear that commentary in conjunction with watching Dreamcatcher. So please come join us and let this episode serve as an upper crust example of of what we're doing over on the Patreon. You can join us at patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. Now on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad luck! Bad luck! Guys, we're gonna see a dead body. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Scott Walter. And I am Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have something of an outside-of-the-box idea for this episode. And in order to execute that, we have brought in a, a woman by the name of Lindsay Travis. Lindsay, say hello. Hello. Lindsay is a lawyer. And actually, Lindsay, could you introduce yourself to um, the uh, the audience before we get into why you're here? Sure. I'm a lawyer, like you said. Um, I was a litigator for about five, six years so I know the law and many various lawyerings. Um, and I also write about movies, mostly about horror movies, but movies and things like that for the internet. So I think I was the natural selection. Yeah, you came very highly recommended by our mutual friend, Mr. Phil Nabil Jr., who's the editor-in-chief over at Fangoria. And I, I went to Phil and I pitched him this wild idea I had for a bonus episode. And I was like, but I'm going to need a lawyer to do it. And you were the first person he named. Oh. And luckily, you you responded to the pitch. Um, That's so nice. <laughs> before we, we get into what we're here to talk about today, um, I just want to ask, is, is being a lawyer cool? That's an interesting question. It's not not cool, uh, but it's not as cool as like movies make it look. Like I don't do a lot of like slow-mo walking with like, music with really loud bass playing behind me. I don't get to like throw my arms around and do like circles around courtrooms telling cool stories. It's not like that cool. But, like I do get right. to wear cool suits sometimes. Uh, I'm in Canada and we actually still wear legal robes. So like 
If you ever watched Ooh. a lawyer show that takes place in the UK where they have those robes, we wear those. Or what like judges wear for you guys, we wear those all the time. Right. So it's cool. For real? Like, Just when you're lawyering? Yeah. Like not like in your office, but like in a courtroom, you wear them all the time. And uh, like yeah, black sometimes robe? like yeah, like these like long black robes. It's kind of cool because you look like Batman, but also they get stuck on chairs a lot, which is really funny. Cause you're like <laughs> <laughs> You're like trying to like look super cool and polished and professional and you sit down and then stand back up and then walk by a chair and get pulled backwards, which like <laughs> it's really beautiful, but it's all in the interests of justice. So it's very easy to laugh at this, but at the same time, um, I've seen some of the people representing us legally lately mm-hmm. uh, in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, though they are not wearing robes, I think they are tripping over their dicks just as much <laughs> they as are tripping over anyone things. else. Have you ever told a judge that, that they're out of order, that the whole damn court's out of order. The whole system's yeah, out of order. Yeah. I've like thought yeah. about it a lot of times. Um, <laughs> What's no. the most dramatic thing you've ever seen in a courtroom? Honestly, but like, oh, I wish I had a really good answer for that. Because one thing about like courtrooms is they're like not as dramatic as you think they are. Um, right. But there's these things that are almost like they're like not quite judges. We call them masters. So they're like para judges <laughs> that see like. <laughs> Um, you know, smaller matters and they like to yell a lot, which is pretty awesome. So except when it's you, but when it's other people, but it's always like the masters are really, really dramatic, but it tends to happen over like the least dramatic things. It's like you sign something in the wrong spot and they'll just like shout at you. But I can't think of the most dramatic thing I've ever seen in a courtroom. No one's ever been tackled. No one's ever started tackled. I have been locked in a courtroom one time. I didn't see anything, but I did get locked inside because there was like an intruder who was coming to attack the judge. Which was that's pretty, pretty dramatic. Yeah, I guess that's pretty dramatic. And then I had to go on my way out. I had to get like all the, like metal detector searches and stuff. And I forgot my wallet. And I had to go back in to get it. And that was, I mean, not like the most exciting story of all time. But I had to like go back through, and I'm like again in my awkward legal robes, trying to be like, no, my wallet's in there. Like, there's not, I'm not hiding anything in this giant outfit. Yeah. Well, where would you put a wallet in a robe? That's what I'm saying. There's no pockets in those things. No pockets. It's just like a big dress thing that gets stuck on stuff and has this really funny vest that you wear underneath it. So it's funny to see people in like tiny vests when they take them off. I guess this is a podcast about how funny robes look, but (laughs) they are, they are, they're cool. They're cool when you wear them. You know, you feel like an academic. I could sit here and uh, shotgun questions at you about being a lawyer for many hours, but we are here for the purpose. So I suppose we should move on to it. My idea for this episode was I wanted uh, somebody, uh, a lawyer, to come on and essentially plead a case for Andy Dufresne from Mm -hmm. the Shawshank Redemption. And you have sent us a a number of notes, multiple pages of notes (laughs) with an opening statement. And well, we're just surprised to see this level of commitment from one of our guests. Uh, Elijah Wood comes in here and he's never read a Stephen King book, you know. (laughs) Well, You're coming in here with, with a whole whole thing fleshed out. So I do think that's worth pointing out. So just for the people at home, what we're going to do now is we're going to allow you are you are speaking in defense of Andy Dufresne. Yes. Oh, and, God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's OK. Or He's fictional. I didn't understand so the assignment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A man's not, a life is not hanging in the balance either way. But yeah. you are you are going to defend Andy Dufresne via an opening statement. And then we're going to have a conversation about how you might deal with this case going forward. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like what I would have done um, and sort of what would have changed. And yeah. Okay. We're trying to keep Andy out of Shawshank. Yes. Yes. This is our attempt to do that. It's already happened. He's already escaped, but you know, maybe in an alternate universe, we can just avoid the Shawshank redemption ever happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the, this is our attempt to uh, uh, to make this the most boring novella King has ever written. <laughs> well, at the very least, he doesn't have to go through the trauma with the the sisters and and all That's of right. that. And, yeah, he will not know, be redeemed. There will be no redemption, but ideally, nothing could be redeemed for. <laughs> <laughs> and poor Red okay, just so- rot away. I, I see what we're doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry, oh, Red. that's true. You are kind of condemning a man here today, Lindsay. Um, that's something we should all think about when we're when we're done here today. But that's if you want me to defend that's Red, fine. that's a whole other that's a whole other assignment. <laughs> so we have a well recommended, very passionate, well studied, well researched lawyer who sometimes wears a robe, does not have pockets, 
here to defend Andy Dufresne. In Canada, do they, they do a drum roll before you come up? Like, what's yeah. the what's there's the actually proper... there's a marching band usually first. Okay, okay, up. and then everyone does a shot of maple syrup. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Okay. That's exactly. Wow. Oh my gosh, you've been here. Yeah. Well, my my grandparents were from uh, Toronto. Oh, so. Scott's been on trial for murder in, in Canada. <laughs> I, don't, I, mean, I, I I have been in courtrooms on the wrong side of the the fucking bench, but um, only American ones. But my grandparents, yeah, they were war criminals. So I imagine oh, they yes. spent a lot so of time. You're familiar with the process. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna turn it over to you. Uh this is this is your chance to shine. You're gonna oh, kill gosh. it. Don't worry about Thank it. Thank you. Don't Let's be do intimidated. That. Don't be worried. I mean, that's not making me feel less intimidated. Um, so when we used to do these uh things in law school called moot court where you would basically argue a fake appeal. And uh, I was always nervous that you're going to like read your notes and sit there and stare. So I had this like photo of Tom Cruise and a few good men that I would stick to my podium. Like I would hide <laughs> it from my podium because he always looks so like passionate and dramatic in his delivery. And I was like, it'll remind me to like be ready and to not, you know, just sit there and read my notes. And uh, anyway, I got busted for it. And I, you know, graduated law school in 2013 and I still get made fun of for my uh, a few good men picture, which I did just pull up. To have on my monitor to be right <laughs> <Do> here today. <laughs> so there you go. It's very Harold Lauder of you, but we'll let it let it slide. <laughs> this is dedicated to a few good men. All right, here we go. The defendant in this case is Andy Dufresne. Andy is a banker. He's smug. He wears fitted suits. He lives in a nice house, and he had a tumultuous relationship with his late wife. He's a contemptible man, but Andy Dufresne is not a murderer. Members of the jury, this is a case about sadness and loss. It is a case about a man who thought he'd lost everything the night he learned his wife was having an affair. He mourned that loss, and then he learned he'd lost even more. And the state is trying to make him pay the price for what someone else took from him. The prosecution is going to paint a picture of a volatile relationship between Mr. Dufresne and one of the victims, his wife, Linda. They're going to paint a picture of a broken man, devastated by his spouse's infidelity, a man who got drunk and parked a car outside the home of her lover, the other victim, Glenn Quinton. None of these facts are in dispute by Mr. Dufresne. But then the prosecution is going to fill in blanks with flimsy evidence and unsubstantiated testimony. The ramblings of store clerks, theories of missing pieces, circumstantial physical evidence that they've not been able to tie to Mr. Dufresne, and the lack of a murder weapon that could connect anyone to these crimes. They're going to use flimsy evidence to try and convince you that Mr. Dufresne is a murderer, which he is not. Andy Dufresne would tell you just what he told the police. On the night of these tragic killings, Andy went to the country club bar. He had some drinks. He got into his vehicle. He drank two quarts of beer and smoked some cigarettes. And he watched outside his wife's lover's house. Then he started to sober up and he went home. Later, the police investigated two murders looking to make sense of the lack of evidence against Mr. Dufresne. Their ace in the hole, since they've been unable to locate the murder weapon, has been the testimony of a shop clerk who claims he sold Mr. Dufresne dish towels along with his beer and cigarettes. Dish towels. To muffle the sounds of gunshots. The prosecution has attempted to paint the picture of Mr. Dufresne as intoxicated and full of rage, bent on punishment so much so that they allege he fired eight shots at the victims in the heat of passion, but then stopped to muffle them with dish towels. An action that doesn't align with their version of the killings. So when they couldn't find a gun or any physical evidence connecting their choice suspect to the crime, they created it. They found a shopkeeper that claims to remember selling Mr. Dufresne dish towels. They provided no paper receipts for this transaction, no connection of the towels to the shop Mr. Dufresne attended, but without the dish towels, they have nothing. The prosecution has the burden of proof in this case. They must prove to you that Andy Dufresne committed these crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. You're going to hear days of testimony and see lots of evidence. But if there's one thing I want you to remember, it's this. There is no evidence that Mr. Dufresne entered the home of Mr. Quinton. None. There is no evidence he ever attended the crime scene. At stake is a life sentence for Mr. Dufresne and the ability for the murderer of two people to walk away scot-free. At stake is Mr. Dufresne the solitary remaining member of his young family, serving life for mourning the loss of his beloved wife. At stake is everything, and the prosecution brought us dish towels. Tom Cruise would be proud. First oh my gosh. 
You Thanks killed so much. You killed it. That was fantastic. <laughs> I was enraptured by this. Wow. Are you Eric, like? How are you? How are you feeling? Are you just blown away? Well, like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah. No, I, I, I think uh, Andy's walking away free. Not guilty. <laughs> So if you're if you're presenting, you know, if you're defending, this is if this is your opening statement. What are the rest of these notes that you've provided us with? Is this how you would actually put together a case, like yeah. or, or a defense? So what the book, or I guess what the story leaves out a lot of. Sorry, can you guys hear a dog barking in the background? Yeah, that's fine. We like dogs. Okay, I'm so sorry. There's a lot of dogs here. I'm trying my best. <laughs> sorry about that. Guys. That's good. <laughs> um. So yeah, the book leaves out, uh, the story leaves out a lot about what happened before the trial, right? We only get a little snippets of the trial and then it's about Andy in jail. So we don't know a ton about what actually happened, but there's a lot of implications, more implications in the movie that the defense attorney was like pretty not engaged in the story and, you know, not engaged in the trial, which is interesting because, you know, they act like Andy was pretty successful and he might've had good counsel. And it kind of implies that Andy was really uh, taking the lead. So the biggest thing I noticed when I saw this, so Andy would have never testified in real life. Um, Mm -hmm. And Red says in the book that, you know, he might have insisted on it because he's, you know, I'm truthful and the truth is important and I'm a fact-based guy. Um, But in real life, that wouldn't have happened. So you talk about compelability of witnesses, you cannot compel an accused to testify. So you can't force them. The court can't make um, a defendant testify in their own trial. Uh, some witnesses, you can force them to testify, but not an Why accused. would you, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. why would yeah. you not want him to testify? So for two huge reasons, the first one is that a jury's job, you know, we talk about that the jury's job is to assess the facts, but the jury's job is actually to assess the credibility of witnesses. So the witnesses present facts and the jury listens to them and decides if they believe the witness is telling the truth. So in movies like, um, uh, you remember in my cousin Vinny when, uh, Monica or yeah, Monica, Miss Vito, like, oh, Mona Lisa. Why did I think her name was Monica? When uh, Mona Lisa Vito sits down and they ask her a bunch of questions about what she knows about cars. Do you remember that in the movie? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. They ask her about like, what do you know about cars? And they kind of trick her into going off about cars. So that is to establish to the jury that she's an expert and that everything she says is probably right. So it doesn't really matter what she says. The jury's deciding, is she telling the truth? So when you have an accused on the stand, the jury is looking at you and deciding if you're telling the truth, they're assessing you for credibility. And it is really hard to make the person who is sitting behind the defense table and is accused of murder. It's really difficult to make them look credible on a stand. The jury already assumes they're a liar. Hmm. Um, Okay. You know, so that's not good. You don't want them to look, you don't want the jury to be assessing their evidence for credibility because you could go and sit there like you're accused of murder and you could sit there and you could talk about everything that you did that proves that you didn't, but they're looking at you being like, this guy's probably lying. He looks like a defendant to me. That doesn't look good. The other thing is the, so the prosecution can't force you to testify, but what they can do when you do testify is they can cross examine you. So it opens you up to being questioned on the stand by the uh, prosecution, which is really dangerous. And it's actually what happens to Andy the prosecution asks him a lot of very specific questions. So another thing that happens in movies a lot, if you've ever seen, or even like Law and Order all the time, they say objection. That's a leading question. Have you ever seen that mm-hmm. in film? Oh, yeah. So a leading question. So open-ended questions are what you can ask in examination. Leading questions are what you can ask in cross-examination. So you're only allowed to ask leading questions. So those are basically questions that force a yes or no answer. So, and then you attended your wife's lover's house. Yes. And then you drank more beers. Yes. And then you loaded your gun. No. You know what I mean? They can ask those questions that force the yes or no answer. They're dangerous for a couple huge reasons. The first one is it really doesn't matter what you say. If I make implications about what you did, it already looks like it's true, whether you say yes or no. Right, right, right. And I can force you to sound like you're lying. So I'm trying to think of an example in like a popular movie. Did you guys see The Social Network? Yeah, of course. So remember the scene where uh, they're talking about the party that uh, with Zuckerberg and uh, oh god Andrew Garfield's character and yeah, they're um, talking- 
fuck, no, no, what no. is his name in that? I don't remember his name. It's not like Mario, but it's something. <laughs> it's like not in right? our wheelhouse. Luigi. It's Luigi. Yeah, it's Luigi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's Wario. It's yeah. Wario. It's I remember. Luigi, yes. I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're talking to Why am I the worst in names today? They're talking to the lawyer. Uh, God, whatever. Anyway. And they talk about like what would be successful at trial because they're doing mediations and examinations. And she says something about like, huh, she asked him a question like, huh, and you were so mad that you probably staged that to make him look bad, right? And Zuckerberg's like, no. And she's like, it doesn't matter what you say. I just put that to the jury. Like she's like, they're already thinking it. And it's Mm -hmm. true. You can make suggestions that makes the jury pause and think like, oh, interesting. And it doesn't really matter what you say. So it's really dangerous to put the accused on the stand because the jury looks at them and thinks they're a liar. And the prosecution gets to ask you really pointed leading questions and make you say things that you probably don't mean. And Andy actually, weirdly enough, does a good job at his cross-examination. The the prosecutor asks him a lot of questions like, oh, and then you threw out your gun like you say. Isn't that convenient? And Andy famously says, like, it's decidedly inconvenient um, that they can't find the gun. Sorry, give me a second. Here the judge so did sorry. not like that. <laughs> sorry, give me two seconds. I'm just going to live out. Well, objection, sorry, so objection. Sorry. Okay, I think we're good. Yeah, so the prosecution asked him a lot of pointed questions about the gun and where it is. And Andy actually does a really good job where he says, you know, it's decidedly inconvenient that you can't find the gun because it would exonerate me. He doesn't actually get trapped in those lies that the prosecution sets up for him. That seems to me like a line that in any other movie would be like the thing that if this was the end of a, a courtroom drama, like that might be the key moment where he turns it around for himself, but it obviously doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work in, in this case. Um, but uh, my, I would like to ask you about the jury itself. Like uh, what kind of a jury would you want for somebody like Andy? Like who would you want to avoid? Who would you want to have on there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um It would kind of depend on how much media there was around this and how famous Andy was by this time. You probably want a good mix, like the type of people that you're convincing. Like, so again, Andy sucks, right? Like, even though I shouldn't say he sucks, but the implication, you know, he's a banker and he dresses nicely and he wears nice glasses and he's very smug. So you don't want anybody that's going to look at him as some like rich white guy that probably killed his wife, right? Like, what do I care about this Mm -hmm. guy's problem? So you definitely wouldn't want anybody like that. You might want people that are like him. You might want people that have had affairs themselves, um, not people that have had spouses that have had affairs because you don't want anybody who's angry. Something like you don't want someone that thinks like this would be a justifiable uh, feeling, but you might want them to think it's a justifiable crime. But you want people that are going to look at this guy and think like, oh, he was upset. Um, You know, Andy talks about how he was really drunk and depressed. Um, So you might want people that would sympathize with that, but you won't want them to think that that would make them do anything crazy. So it'd be pretty tough. You'd be jury selection is really, really difficult. Um, there are like consultants and teams that work on it, and it's really tough. And you ask a lot of questions. But I think in this one, a big one would just be that you wouldn't want people that would hate the rich guy, and you wouldn't want people that knew who he was before the trial. Which My is really brain hard. is exploding with questions right now. Well, um, <laughs> First of all, like in in jury selection, how are you determining who has cheated on their spouse? Are you just like, straight up asking them? Yeah. And people yeah. admit to this in court? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you can ask them. There's also like jury investigators. It happens a lot more in the States. I'm thinking of all these movies and I wish I like had them teed up. What's that one <laughs> with the cigarette companies? And it's a it's like a jury selection thriller. Thank you. Like, oh, uh, Mike. No. Um. God, do you know what I'm talking about? I was going to say thank you for smoking or Michael Collins, but it's not either one of those. No. Um, uh, Curly Sue. That's Yeah, yeah, Curly Sue. But you can research them. And I mean, especially now, researching people is really, really easy. Like I've done a lot of witness research and it's really easy. Like everyone puts everything. You don't think people are dumb enough to leave things open, but they are. Like I did a lot of... Uh, more like injury stuff and it was so easy i'd have all these people be like i'm so injured i can't you know work or walk and my life's ruined and then they would have like photos of them all over instagram doing cartwheels and gymnastics and you're like come on (laughs) right and so it's really easy to get that kind of information um i mean obviously it wouldn't have been that easy at the time of uh 
Dufresne's trial, but that's something that you would do now is you would research the witnesses or sorry, research the jury um, and ask them a lot of questions. Jury selection happens where everyone gets a certain amount of vetoes and then you have to decide together. So you both have to agree on the jurors, the prosecution and the defense. Is is it a red flag for a a juror or a potential juror to be like into being on the jury? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because I am the rare person who, like, actually, I'm fascinated by this stuff. And so when I get my jury duty summons, like, I actually show up and don't try to talk my way out of it. Uh, what? I, I, I've been I've been a jury foreman. And, and then I got called in for a jury selection on a legit, like, holy shit. Because the one that I was a foreman on, it was just a lady who was speeding in a school zone and decided to push it to trial. But the uh, I'm, I'm uh, sorry, how how hyped were you after going through the effort of being passionate about this uh, upon learning that was the case? Uh, well, I mean, listen, I was just were fascinated you by, by anything. Like, but there, there's no way. There, oh, Jesus Christ. This is the last thing I would want to do. So I'm sort of fascinated by this now. Uh, my other jury summons, like there's been two. Um, two? And, uh, I'm so unlucky. <laughs> The other one was uh, like a big deal. It was an act. It was like a, I don't, was it a murder? It was, it, it was, uh, it was a high crime. It was definitely a high crime. And it was like these two kids or two teens that were accused of like shooting a, a store owner or whatever. It's like big news in Austin. Whoa. And uh, it's one thing to be like, yes, this person obviously sped. There's footage. There's, you know, pay the fine and, you know, congratulations for, for trying to get out of the ticket or whatever and, and, and not working. Right. Uh, but this one was like somebody whose like life was on the line. Like, you know, the, these two people were, uh, you know, if they, they were like life in prison. So while, while it was a little bit more somber, you know, I could definitely tell that the lawyers were, were like when they were interviewing the room full of potential jurors were, very much trying to get rid of the people who think that they, the other questions were like, do you watch, you know, uh, uh, you know, CSI kind of shows, do you watch all this stuff? And they were trying to get rid of people who thought they knew the process of, you know, of, of evidence collecting and thought they knew the process of all this stuff from, from film and TV. So anyway, that, that's my, my, my detour into my own personal time. I did not get selected for that jury. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, did they do that shit or not? Uh, I think that, I think they, they were found guilty. Yeah. But I'm right. Okay. Here's my other question for, oh yeah, sorry, go on for, uh, Linz. And I'm sorry. I I call all my female friends, Linz. If that's too familiar, I, I apologize. I also call my good friend, Lindsey Graham, Linz. Uh, Ah, yes. We go way, we go way back. (laughs) But on more than one occasion during this conversation, you have referred to Andy as smug. And I'm, yeah. I'm curious about your thinking for that and also your rationale. So Andy and Red kind of tells this story secondhand, but Andy's kind of um, described as like, I don't remember the exact words he used, but he calls him pretty stoic. They, you know, he's mentioned as kind of contemptible. He's always very facts driven. Um, Red has this cool moment in the book where he says something like, Andy thought the facts or the truth would be good enough. And he presented it to them and said, take it or leave it. And they left it. So Andy's the type of guy, he's a numbers guy. It's like not a coincidence that he's, you know, he's a banker and he does a number of things and he can recall rules. And he's the type of guy who sits there and is like, well, this is the truth. That's all you need to know. He wouldn't have considered that um, they'd be like, oh, he looks like a liar. It doesn't matter. Like, that's not how Andy thinks of things. It's more that he's like, well, here's the truth. I'm giving you the facts. Um, and that's kind of how I viewed him as just sitting there very robotically going through the facts. And even in his, like in the movie, in his over the top big moment of it's decidedly inconvenient, he doesn't get really, really angry. He's still pretty calm and just stating facts. There's a part where the judge looks at him and he says something, uh, like you're repugnant and remorseless and contemptibly says something like that which happens really often that the judge looks at him and says that he didn't show remorse and he's disgusted by him. And he considers that in the sentencing, which actually happens a lot. People think that it's improper, but it happens all the time. Um, and there's that moment where Red's kind of says something like, well, how is he supposed to show remorse? He didn't do the crimes. It's that interesting catch 22 thing. So Andy doesn't look sad or upset. Even in, um, in jail, Red describes the fact that he doesn't look sad or upset or he never really mourns his loss. Right. So 
imagine that guy sitting there looking calm, not worried, not upset. He's got the facts on his side. That's not a guy that a jury's going to be like, oh, I feel so bad for him that he got caught right up on. in this, right? And that's why, like, in my opening, I really tried to make, like, oh, poor Andy. He's lost so much. Don't make him lose any more. He lost mm. his wife. It's so devastating. How could he possibly be punished anymore for something that had nothing to do with him? Because Andy kind of is the inverse of that in reality. I'd like to look at the evidence too, because you, you very, the, there's a direct line where they can prove that he was near the eventual crime scene, but there is no evidence actually inside the crime scene. Yeah. Um, and there's no evidence, you know, on him. There's no, there'd be no blood. There'd be no, nothing. Um, and also keeping in mind that this is what we're talking, setting this is the, what, the 50s, the 40s? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's the 40s, I want to say. So, I mean, this is pre-DNA evidence, obviously. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not hitting up Ancestry.com to, you know, to... Uh, <laughs> to compel the uh, DNA evidence. Ah, that's right. Right, yeah. How strong is this for the prosecution? It seems very flimsy, you know, on the outside that there's no hard evidence. But so their whole entire case is just essentially based on this makes emotional sense to the mm-hmm. jury, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is that, you know, when a woman dies, it's most likely her partner or significant other. So that's usually the first person that they would investigate. So it makes sense that they would go right to Andy and then finding out that it was her lover and he knew about it, it would be pretty easy to focus on him. Um, they've got the evidence that he got drunk and went inside or sorry, and parked outside their house and watched them for a while. He admitted to having purchased the same type of gun that was used in the murders And then he sat outside and left. And one of the worst things for Andy is that he doesn't remember anything. And again, being that he's super fact-based, he makes the point of saying, you know, I don't remember not doing it. So when he's asked uh, in cross-examination whether he remembers buying the towels and he says no, he asks if he remembers not buying the towels. And he says, no, he can't remember either way. So it doesn't look great for him that he was so drunk that he couldn't remember what he was doing. So that's, again, why I wanted to kind of paint the picture that, you know, he was drunk and stupid uh, not stupid, but he was, you know, drunk and in a rage, and then he sobered up and left. It would have wouldn't make sense that he would stop to muffle the gunshots. That wouldn't really make a lot of sense. Um, which I think is the biggest piece in you know what I've seen. I think it's the biggest piece is that you know you can't paint the picture of him as like drunk and messy and full of rage and super passionate and committing this crime of passion in this stupor, but taking time to muffle the gunshots just seems like a really specific thing to do. Yeah, so of course they would investigate him. Not having the gun, it seems pretty fatal that they don't have the murder weapon. It is and it isn't. You don't always need a murder weapon, but a murder weapon is going to get you your conviction. No murder weapon is kind of like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's no evidence that he ever entered the home. So again, the book and movie differ. The movie says that he's got, that his fingerprints are on the bullets that they found, which I guess kind of implies that he chucked the gun, someone got it, and then brought it to the crime scene and used it, which would be pretty bad, but that uh, is not the case here. There's no evidence that he ever entered One of the things they really dwell on the fact is that there wasn't a robbery. Um, So why would someone come in and just shoot these people for no reason? Um, If I was investigating, I would really spend a lot of time trying to find out who Quentin's enemies were. Um, I would want to know everything about people who didn't like the guy, anyone who ever looked at him funny in his life, um, and really get into that. And also the thing about robbery, and actually Red brings us up in the book, is that it's really hard to say there's no signs of robbery because you don't know what's missing. You don't have mm-hmm. anybody around to say, I had a safe full of a hundred grand or, you know, I had drugs stashed in my toilet. Who knows? So they say there's no evidence of a robbery, but that's not really true. So that's kind of a tough one too. Now, another, another key part of all this is the confession of the other inmate that mm-hmm. comes in, you know, later in the story, post-conviction. Andy's already in jail. A new guy shows up. The guy that was supposed to be played by Brad Pitt originally. Right. He comes in. Yeah, yeah, for real. He comes in. He's telling wild stories about this guy that looks like fucking Skeletor that he was in a a cell with. You know, very freaky looking dude. Uh, And he's just like, yeah, he just killed those motherfuckers. And, (laughs) you know, that that leads to its own whole thing. The guy who was not Brad Pitt eventually gets killed by the warden for that. Mm -hmm. If you were if you were Andy's defense lawyer, you lost this case and then somehow you found this out like what is your what is your course of action there yeah, this is like what 10 years later it, it's significant yeah. Yeah. time has passed but then this new information comes 
Yeah, yeah. Do you like drop everything at that point? And you're like, holy fuck, dude, we got to go back in there and like figure this out. Like what happens if you're in that scenario? This one, this is a messy one. This is to me the most like exciting part about all of this, but it's definitely the most difficult thing to <laughs> exciting, super riveting, exciting legal drama. But it's the hardest thing to um, really evaluate because there are so many factors. So Andy has been convicted. This is not before his trial. It's after. This is a third hand statement from someone in a jailhouse. Yes. Already um, questionable. Already questionable. There are parts that are some, you know, that don't look great. So, you know, he gets the name wrong. There are a few inconsistencies. And there's not... He's not any, even Brad Pitt. He's not even Brad Pitt. That's number one. So if you're assessing uh, credibility, you're like, this guy's not even Brad Pitt. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot there. To be fair, ev- everybody fails that except for one person on this earth. It's so. true. And he's the only guy who's credible on the whole planet. Um, <laughs> other than that, no one's going to believe this guy. Yeah. So it's interesting. In the book, the warden actually doesn't kill the guy. He just kind of transfers him quietly. And I like that better only because the warden's very right. Like when Andy has his moment where he's like, it's my life, warden. Like you have to let me make a phone call. Uh, the warden is very right that Andy does not have a lot in that moment. And of course, Andy would say like, this is everything to me. This is my life in prison or my freedom, but he doesn't have much. So there's a test, um, essentially when new evidence comes up after trial, you have to ask the court and you usually make a motion before the court to reopen a case for new evidence. And the court is going to decide on a few things. So they're going to if it's enough evidence that it would change, would have changed the conviction. So they can't actually decide, you know, what would have happened. They can't know that, but they can think, you know, would this actually have changed anything? So is this just a second person agreeing to something we already knew? Is it just more evidence for something that the jury already said we didn't believe? Um, Or is this something new that would have actually possibly changed the conviction? They're also going to think about, when did you find this evidence out and why? So why why didn't you find out earlier? So um, without getting like too jargony, there's a thing called discoverability. And you can't say that evidence uh, wasn't discovered. You have to say that it could not have been discovered. So if someone was like, well, right. why didn't you interview this guy the first time? I don't care that you found out about this now. You know, I you had the opportunity to find out about it and you didn't. That's on you. That's not on but us to reopen the case. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, as I'm saying, like, I would have probably investigated um, all of Quentin's enemies. Would I have gone around the golf club and seen if anyone hated him? Would I have maybe come across this guy? I don't know. The thing is a confession. Obviously, you could not have found out about an advance of trial because it happened after the trial. So yeah, probably and wasn't this guy after. like, a th- I'm sorry to interrupt you. Wasn't this guy like a thrill killer? Like he just, yeah. can't, he just went in there and shot these motherfuckers. Yeah, he just like enjoyed it. He just like didn't like so him very did. much and he shot him. So even if you had investigated Quentin, you likely would not have found this guy. No. Yeah. And yeah, so it probably would not have come up. So I think that the discoverability thing is fine. But you have to talk about, so does this actually speak to guilt and innocence? Yes, it does. Because obviously it would exonerate uh, Andy potentially. Could they have discovered it before? Probably not because the confession didn't exist. Would it have changed the course of the trial hypothetically if it did exist? I don't know. And here's really? why. Here's why. There's a thing called hearsay. And if there are any lawyers or law students listening, I'm sure they're like shuddering at the word hearsay because it is the worst thing that you have to learn in law school. Um, it's very, very Wait, difficult. Why? So it's in the rules of evidence, there's a thing called the hearsay rule. So most things in, in law go positive. So here are, you know, the five things that you can do or the five things that you need or the fi- whatever in the positive, if that makes sense. The hearsay right. rule works a negative. So the hearsay rule means that any statements made outside of court are not admissible as evidence. So they're not admissible as evidence. That's the rule. And then the rest of the rule is like 20 pages of exceptions to the hearsay rule. So it's like... That seems crazy. (laughs) It's so crazy. I'm like stressed out just telling you about it. Um, So So unless, unless this guy was on the stand and confessed then it doesn't really matter. Sort of. 
No, How can so, that be? Okay. Like, if he was standing out front of the fucking courthouse and he's like, yeah, I killed those motherfuckers. Well, that's where we talk about the exceptions. Like, the sorry, you should have been sitting okay. on this block of wood and then, you know, maybe it would have made a difference. <laughs> you didn't put your hand on the Bible. Well, so there are exceptions to the hearsay rule. One of them, the most popular one, is the um, mood. If it goes to the mood or demeanor of the accused. So if you remember in the story, the bartender can uh, testifies that Andy said to him, I'm going to go confront my wife and her lover and you'll read the rest about it in the papers. So that's technically hearsay, right? This is not evidence. It's not a recording. It's not a video. It's just a guy saying what Andy said to him. The reason why you would make an exception in that case is because it speaks to Andy's demeanor. So, Andy seemed upset and might have implied that he was going to do something crazy because you'll read about it in the papers. So that was allowed in. Confessions are typically an exception to the hearsay rule because you would make the argument that no one would confess to something unless it was true. Because why would you say something that is against your own best interests unless it was true? Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So like, okay. There aren't a lot of people out there being like, yeah, I committed 20 crimes. It was awesome. Unless it is true, because it could potentially get you in trouble. So would this confession be allowed as an exception to hearsay? Yeah, probably. It would probably be allowed. Um, You'd probably be allowed to present it as evidence. But (laughs) this is where it goes in 50 different directions. The jury is assessing credibility. From before we were talking about, like, juries assess credibility, not the evidence. So what is the credibility of a guy who is in jail, so he's a convicted felon, he is trying to impress the, the popular guy, Andy, who has a lot of power. And he is telling a story about a guy that he met in another prison who is also a felon confessing to a crime with a few details that are incorrect. How credible is that going to be? Hmm. Okay. Not very. So. Yeah. I know from Andy's point of view, he was trying to, like you said, he's very analytical and very fact-based so like he was going well there'll they'll be records mm-hmm. you know so if this if this guy worked at this country club you know there would be records of that there would be a, a time stamp you know for an employee there'd be all these things like ha- does that add up to to anything in, in your mind or is that all secondary i think it's secondary because it just proves that he knew him it could go to the fact that like well he knew quentin and he confessed to killing quentin so he's not just some guy so that right. could be decent, um, but without anything to suggest that he had any problems with Quentin or anything like that, it probably wouldn't be worth much. Like, if I were his lawyer, would I try to make the motion um, for a new trial? I would try. I would say, you know, someone confessed, confessed to it. Um, mm-hmm. Now versus the 40s. So there, there's a project called the Innocence Project, which you may or may not have heard of, but it's basically yeah, a group of guys. Yeah, so there you go. So they, you know, try to get evidence to exonerate convicted criminals. And their um, stats show that the leading cause of wrongful convictions is jailhouse informants. So jailhouse informants are very often incentivized, right? So, you know, if you can, if you help us, if you give us information on this other crime or this other, you know, for this other trial, that could be good for you in your trial. That could, you know, we could put you in a nicer prison. We could give you more privileges. So usually incentivized. And so there's a lot of incentive for someone in jail to give evidence in another trial. So as a result of that, they're viewed as uncredible now. But in the 40s, they might have been like, wow, this just blew the lid right open. Like, that might have looked really good. So I'm like thinking of it like, oh, now there's just no way we would brush that off, you know, but Obviously, that's after like 60, 70 years of fighting that. So we're talking about the right. 40s. Yeah, they might have thought it was pretty great. Um, and they might have considered reopening his case. But it's a weird one because usually you're viewing those things um, with respect to the trial of that person. And this is not the trial of that person. It's the trial of Andy. So it's a little bit different than evaluating whether or not it would have gotten that guy convicted of the crime because that's irrelevant. That guy getting convicted has nothing to do with whether or not it would make Andy walk because kind of confusing, but... Again, the prosecution has the burden to show beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, If that questions the doubt of Andy, then Andy could walk away for it. Or sorry, if that brings doubt to Andy's trial, he could walk away. Um, And then this guy, there still might not be any evidence to convict this guy. Those two things can both happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Like it actually has happened. That's why there's like cases where you try to try people together because it's happened often where like one person creates doubt for the, if both two people are accused of the same crime and they both create doubt for each other. So then neither of them is convicted and it's interesting. So that can happen too. Let me ask you this. I, I guess you're obligated to answer in a certain way, but I'm going to ask anyway. Okay. What happens if you're a lawyer and you're representing, you're defending somebody and you begin to believe that they are guilty? Mm-hmm. You know, do you excuse yourself? Like, is the, that's the process, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's what you're supposed to do? Yes. Because I, you know, there are, you know, big court cases, you know, that you might follow through true crime or pop culture or what have you, where it's like, just from an outside perspective, you're looking at it and you're like, his lawyer must know he's full of fucking shit. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way this is true. I guess what I'm getting at is presented with the evidence you have just based on the movie and the novella, how confident would you feel about Andy's innocence? So there are a lot of considerations like, so yeah, that exactly what you're saying. If you believe your client to be guilty, you're supposed to wash your hands of them. And it's not that you believe it's more, if you like, no, you shouldn't be defending someone that you think should be behind bars, but guilty kind of has a, has a more loaded connotation than it sounds like. So everyone is entitled to a defense under the law. And that comes up a lot. You know, people talk about like, how could you defend someone so horrible? Um, you're not the response to that is you're not defending the person you're defending the law and the legal system. So without going on to, to a huge, you know, jargony tangent, but the best example is we talk about unlawful search and seizure. So, um, say you're just driving along one day, uh, or not you say some guy who's driving along one day and I'm a cop and I pull him over. I just decide to, I don't, for no reason. And I decide to rip apart his car and I find cocaine in his car. And I, you know, bring him to trial for a cocaine. Is he guilty of possession of cocaine? Yeah. Does his lawyer know that? Yeah. But that's not really what's in question here. What's in question is, was that evidence collected properly? And so what the lawyer is fighting is a system where cops are allowed to pull you over and look through your car for no reason. Got it. So if you were found guilty, you would create a precedent where that was okay for evidence collection. So you're not really fighting whether or not he did what he's accused of a little bit more loaded than that. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So Andy is entitled to defense under the law. There's no allegations or there's nothing in this that suggests that what the um, cops did was improper other than the uh, investigation of the shop owner, the shopkeeper. There's kind of like some whispers about the fact that, you know, they asked the shopkeeper the same questions over and over again until they got what they wanted. And that's something that I would test if I was Andy's lawyer. But so whether or not I believe that Andy committed the crime, it does matter, of course, but it's not really my beliefs. He's still entitled to a defense um, under the law. Would you think that he committed the actual crime? Oh, 100%. Andy looks so guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that guy's in big trouble. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that was great. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there is, you know, there's no evidence he went inside the house. There's a lot, there's a good defense there, but I would be like, Ooh, buddy, you're in big trouble. If I was a lawyer, I would tell him to take a plea, but, um, it does. I mean, to be fair, it does look pretty bad for our man Andy. <laughs> I mean, like if the, if the question is like, you know, you have two options here. There was a guy and he's very mad because his wife is stooping a, what is he, a golf pro or some shit? The country club. It's always a golf pro with Stephen King. This came always. up in, in Creep oh. Show too, right? Oh. You know, no, um, uh, Cat's Eye. Cat's Eye. That's what. Oh, he's was. a tennis pro. He's a tennis pro. Tennis pro is another popular one. Some Ooh. sort of some sort of sports pro. It's never football though, or no. baseball. It's like tennis well, or like golf country or club sports. Badminton. Not, or not a lot of like women checking into the country club to learn how to throw. Totally. Well, it's a, it's a very, it's a very white collar yeah. sort of uh, sport. But like, if the option is this guy's wife is getting fucked by a golf pro, mm-hmm. he had two quarts of beer, which by the way, I looked up, that's five beers. Come on, man. Like, but he doesn't drink you know, very much. Two quarts makes it sound like a lot. Like when you, when your opening statement said that, I was like, 
fucking hell two quarts because I don't understand how measurements work. Yeah. So I, I looked it up like on the sly and it was 5.33 beers. I mean, like, I'd be pretty drunk after 5.33 beers. And he also had some drinks at the country club. Well, I suppose that's fair. But mm. still, like if I'm going to commit like full-blown murder, I think I'm more than five beers in. Mm-hmm. You know, like five oh. beers, that's that's just a hangout night. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I would have to be like blackout in order to commit an actual murder. But but you also add in like the reality of like walking in on your wife, fucking a guy who's probably holding a golf club. There might be a caddy in the room. Yeah. You know, it's going to be very humiliating for you um, <laughs> versus, you know, the other option is like or some random dude strolled into this cabin in the middle of the night and just shot two people and left. Like, it does look pretty bad for Andy. It doesn't look good for Andy. He he purchased a gun, got yeah. drunk, got into his car, drove, watched them for a while, loaded his gun, threw it in the river, and went home. Doesn't look good for the guy. Knowing what you know about murder cases and uh-huh. what have you, and maybe you can't answer this on the air, but... Do you think you would be under the right circumstances, whatever those may be? They're they're different for everyone. Uh, do you think you would be capable of murder? Me personally? Yes. Oh my god! I mean, think of the worst thing you can think of. Murder. Yeah, you know, happening to your dogs, your children, your loved one, your your mother yeah, and father, I think whatever. Everyone's capable of murder. Really? For sure. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he loved murdering folks. Why not? We don't know. I think everyone people would murder. He had a little Otherwise, club. You know. We'd go around bonk people on the head, take them out. Dope. But for the social order, we'd all be killed. No, I don't know. I think yeah. I think anyone's capable of murder. I mean, crimes of passion. It actually brings up a really interesting point that he was really drunk, um, and that would be another possible defense that he was like so drunk he didn't know what he was doing. Which is one of the most frustrating defenses in the history of time, but also one of the more successful defenses. Is that you're so drunk? I was going to say, could you, could you defend from that point of yeah. view? Like, my man was just too trashed. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the yeah, thing. Like, legit, yeah. <laughs> it, it works for, uh, for date rapists in, in college. Yeah, I was so I drunk, mean, I didn't know what I was doing. Well, yeah, for a murder right. thing, well, I guess it doesn't matter. You know, any, can, any sort of high crime, I, right? Yeah, I'm trying to think of cases. In the U.S. But yeah, there's there's been many. Actually, one of the... So one of the gnarliest cases in Canadian history, pretty gross. Uh, there's a guy who got super drunk and assaulted a uh, dead person. But he was so drunk that he didn't know he thought the person was alive. Uh, wait, assaulted, uh, assaulted in what way? Sexually assaulted a uh, dead person. And the question to his guilt was, what crime did he commit, if any? Because he was accused... What he did, his actions were necrophilia. Yeah, um, I can think of a few crimes. Yeah, but what he thinks he was doing was sexual assault. So did he have both the mens rea and the actus reus, and the mens rea being the mental intent, and the actus reus, the actual action, that both match one single crime? And he did not. Pretty pretty weird one. Pretty weird one. So you have he to is have, canceled. He is canceled, no matter <laughs> what we do. Canceled. His right. Twitter we, has we, been we, suspended. Yeah, his parlor um, account. He had to go. He had to go private. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> private. So people wouldn't. Yeah, his sweater was suspended briefly, but then, um, yeah. So <laughs> I hesitated. I stopped myself from saying something I shouldn't. Um, but <laughs> yeah, we're you know we're reflecting. Uh, but yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, someone can get so drunk that they mess up parts of the crime in such a way that they didn't have the intent uh, and commit the action of the same crime which is pretty bizarre. So yeah, you can be so drunk that you can form a different intent than you had. So like, if you got so drunk that you were like, like people drive drunk and it kills someone, it's usually more of the driving and the manslaughter. That's the issue. It's not usually murder. Does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. I used to manage a place that was like, uh, like a quick casual, but upscale Asian place. Right. And we served all our food in these gigantic bowls. You know, each bowl had like two pounds of food in it or something. And there was a guy that used to come in like every every week 
uh, multiple times a week. And he was a very large gentleman. And he would order three different entrees, just a tremendous amount of food. Like on paper, this is six pounds of food at minimum. And he would just eat it all and then leave. And it was, you know, like like watching somebody uh, train to to do a, you know, some sort of eating competition or something. You know, it was it was just fascinating to watch this happen. And I got to thinking one day, like, what is the difference if a bartender overserves, you know, knowingly overserves a patron? And you know, I later became a bartender, and so this was a thing that was also on my mind. But mm-hmm. you know, you you got to pay attention to that. Uh, they go home and they fucking drunk drive and they fucking plow through a an orphanage or something and take out a bunch of kids like, you know, you're going to be in trouble. And I was wondering, like, what you know, what's the difference if I see a guy who's in clearly poor health, who is obviously on the verge of succumbing to his own vices and he's coming in and eating six pounds of food in front of me mm-hmm. and then driving home like it's not unreasonable to say like that guy's going to have a heart attack on the way home and he could just as easily drive through the same fucking orphanage. So I called up my lawyer and I was like, Hey, I want to throw an idea by you. And, and I, I, and I pitched him the idea of like, could the restaurant manager be responsible for over serving somebody who ate too much food in this particular case? Mm -hmm. And he was like, huh? Well, I wouldn't take that case. Mm-hmm. but he's like, there's a lot of like ambulance chasing lawyers that probably would. And you could maybe like argue it in court. I'm curious if you have any uh, opinion of that. Yeah. So the liquor one that you bring up is really interesting. I did liquor liability for a while. And exactly like you said, if you overserve someone and let them get into their car, um, you can be responsible for any. For um, sure. Yeah, and it's not criminally, it's civilly. So you wouldn't like go to jail for the murder. Oh, as you pay a lot of fucking money. Exactly. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Something that wouldn't fly so much in Canada, but would fly a little bit more in the US um, are cases like that. So there is that really famous McDonald's hot coffee case. Um, and there have been cases where like people have sued uh, restaurants um, and chains for having like too much trans fats and they try to bring like class action cases for people with heart problems. And it actually happens pretty often. Um, really? Are they successful? Like, no, never. But they happen and they're heard. Courts will usually hear them. So I think if you did some peripheral research, you would probably find a few. I can't remember off the top of my head, but there are lots where people try to sue large chains because obviously large chains have a lot of money. There was like a whole gag about it in Arrested Development where the woman, yeah, yes. yeah there's like a yeah. whole season about it where they're suing a restaurant for making a woman fat. And yeah, so maybe, I don't know, maybe not necessarily if you like have a heart attack and hurt other people, but yeah, people have definitely gone after restaurants for like, your food is too fatty and I'm sick because of you. Have you guys ever heard of um, the Heart Attack Grill? Oh, no. is it that place where they like... Uh, it, there, it was like on like a Food Network show where they like have like nurses serve you like not real nurses. Yeah, I, I've eaten at one. They're 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 ridiculous, but they they like if anybody would be liable for this, it would be these guys. Anybody over three hundred and fifty pounds eats for free. Um, and uh so you every once a day you can you can order you know in all their burgers are called like the single bypass double bypass triple or quadruple and that's the number of patties that are on the burger um and the quadruple is a a two pound burger and uh and i went there and i ate one of those because i thought there was i think i was like you i saw it on food network and i'm like there's this challenge to where if you eat the quadruple bypass in one sitting then like you went and I'm like, Oh, maybe I'll get a t-shirt. I'm going to, this is my, uh, Adam Richmond, you know, moment, you know, I can man versus food this. And it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. And as somebody who is a large man who loves food at a certain point, it is just chewing and like your jaw muscles hurt and nothing has any taste anymore. It's, it's like, it, it was unpleasant. And then I, I finished and I finished the thing and I'm like, cool, what do I get? And essentially all I got was a, a wheelchair uh, ride out to my car from one of the nurses. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to get like like a T-shirt or something, but apparently you have to win the record. And the record was two and a half quadruple bypasses. So so it was two quadruples and a double bypass. Somebody Five ate pounds? it in one sitting. A burger? <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. <laughs> why, why didn't Come you on, ask man. for the burger? Like, why didn't you ask what you were going to get? I, I, you're, you're right. I, I should have, I made an assumption and that is on me, but, uh, before it became monotonous, the you burger was delicious. This is, is kind of like you wanting to do jury duty. You keep <laughs> wanting to get into these fucking escapades that aren't getting you anywhere. Maybe you got a fucking you. Oh my god! You fucking sat on a, like a, an old. What did she do? She shoplifted a can of soup or something. You know, this, this was <laughs> a moment in the time. She sped like, in a school zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, whatever. And now you're over here. <laughs> Getting a wheelchair ride, <laughs> and you fucking ate two pounds of bread. You must have been so sick. When Jesus you eat Christ. that much food, you can feel it traveling through your your like intestines and stuff. Well, yes. It is the yes. most unpleasant experience of uh, probably not my life. I've broken bones and stuff that that was worse, but you know it was up there and one of the most uncomfortable, unpleasant things that that I've ever done to myself. <laughs> Uh, but the point being is this whole place is called the Heart Attack Grill, and they had an unlimited, like, deep fat lard fried bar, fries bar, so it was like fried in lard, um, and they were, of course, delicious. But it was run by a nutritionist, I found out, and in, like, the theory that me and my friends had was this nutritionist just got fed up of trying to get their clients to eat well, and they're just like, fuck it. Over 350 pounds, eat a double bypass for free on us every day. We just want to get you out of this the system. So, like, you know, and I think those people did get sued quite, quite. Somebody, they, of course, there was a heart attack at a heart attack grill. And uh, and I think that there's still a couple of restaurants still open, but but it, like, killed the franchise. Oh, my the God. The only time I've ever experienced something like that was in here in Austin. And I went to Gordo's. And mm. I went. I went with Phil and a couple other people. And this is the place that does like donut burgers and all kinds of shit. And I just, I felt one of my favorite restaurants in Austin. Yeah, I felt disgusting with myself after I went to the. I mean, it was delicious, but also it's like you could only eat so much of it. And oh yeah, I I just felt like this is a level of decadence that I do not need to involve myself in. <laughs> you know, this was like Caligula shit. Like I. <laughs> I've done every drug you can name. I've done the I've I've done some real wild shit in my life. But like eating a donut burger was like it was it was too much, you know. Yeah. It it was like going down a water slide on Christmas that also happens to be Halloween and it's your birthday and you're getting laid and it's New Year all at the same time. <laughs> same time. And you're on a lot of cocaine. Like it's just too many things. I feel like as much as I'm like laughing at the fact that you finished that burger when you didn't know what you're going to get at the end of it, I am like a prideful person. Like my ego is fragile enough that if I like say that I can do it, I'm definitely going to do it. So I feel like I could totally get caught up in that. I went to this place. It was a, it was Panzerati's, a giant Panzerati's. And if you could finish it, you got it for free. And I was mm. like, I could like, how hard is that? I could do that. I could eat a whole pizza. It's folded in half big deal. Um, but I was wrong. I could not eat it. And I'm very happy, <laughs> but like I was the version of myself because they're, version of myself 99.9% of the time would have eaten that thing till it killed me. But I had this point like halfway through, I was like, this is an $8 Panzerati. Like just pay for it. You just just (laughs) (laughs) It's not worth the pain that I'm going to have to go through later. Yeah. I don't need my picture on the wall as I'm like sweaty and greasy and full of cheese. I don't need them to take a Polaroid for the like champion wall. Lindsay, in your professional opinion, Mm -hmm. do you think, and I, I think we can wrap up here on this, on this question. It's very important. Right. Do you think Andy Dufresne <laughs> could have eaten the two-pound burger? Absolutely not. Andy's slight. <laughs> <laughs> He's felt and restrained. He's too no, smug. I've seen those suits. too smug. He would never let himself look full. No way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he could crawl Very through a mile of shit, but, yeah. but he couldn't eat a two-pound burger. That's true. I mean, to be fair, that's another consideration is a guy who's trying to fit through a very tiny shit pipe. He doesn't want a four right. like, He doesn't want a burger in his gut for that. Thinking about his hip size the whole time he was in jail. What do you think of Andy's ultimate plan? Is he safe in Mexico, do you think? Yeah. Is is he at that is, time? Is he, yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, like extradition is weird. And it's always like really famously like I think of like Blue Streak where he's just like stepping on the border and the cops are like, oh, no, we can't take another foot as if there's like a force field there. Um, right. But yeah, for sure. No one's coming to get him. 
they might try, but like no one's going to find them or recognize them. It is like really convenient. He's like, I have this other identity that I created in a box, but like, okay, sure. Andy. But yeah, in the forties for sure. And now, yeah, maybe, um, you know, so I love people go to Russia, no extradition, like see you later. Bunch of <laughs> Quote unquote, a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people. <laughs> what is the, what is no the best country. people? Would you say the best people with the best, best words go to Russia? <laughs> no one in particular might be uh, holding up in Russia. <laughs> What is the best country if I get in some trouble up the road? Oh boy. What's my best option? I feel like I have of- that thing that I didn't do at the top of this where I'm like, nothing I say can be construed as legal advice. This is all yes. for fun. I had to like do yes. a disclaimer and I feel like I really for need sure. to drive that home in this moment. In your um, non professional opinion. Yeah. Professionally, definitely just don't commit any crimes is my advice yes. to you. Of, well <laughs> of course. I would never. But if uh if I had to say. My wife was fucking a golf pro or uh, uh-huh. you know, yeah. so on and so forth. So before I can criminate myself any further than I did in the past uh, hour or so, um, it's actually uh, illegal for lawyers to give you advice on how to circumvent the law, even if it's legal. Does that make well, sense? Well, I don't want to circumvent it so much as avoid <laughs> it. Circumvent, actually, like, you know, there's that, um, the joke comes up a lot with like mob lawyers where like the mob lawyer will, will be like, oh, here's how to legally grow as much weed as you want to for your illegal thing. You actually can't tell someone the like, most legal way to do a crime. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Probably Russia. I don't know. Maybe Mexico. I don't want to go to fucking Russia. I know Russia, Russia man. But like, Seems like such a bummer over there. And also they seem like they're up to some, some no good business. I feel like Mexico, there's like better chance of like Mexico being like, okay, we'll do you this one favor, America. As we're like, Russia's not going to do America any favors. So they're like, they're going to protect you forever. But like Mexico might be like, we'll trade you this guy for this guy. I don't know. (laughs) North Korea. (laughs) I guess it depends on how infamous my crime is. Yeah. It depends how, yeah. How popular you are. Also like, don't get Instagram or Twitter or anything over there. They'll find you real fast. (laughs) We've learned very recently that uh, posting your crimes on social media is not the best move, apparently. It's not a great move. <laughs> Especially when you're on camera in high res photos being taken of you without a without a mask on as you're committing the crimes. Turns doing. out not the best legal strategy. I wouldn't recommend it. It wouldn't be my first legal advice. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. This was an absolute pleasure. I found it fascinating. You killed it. I'm very excited for people to hear this. Uh, do you have anything uh, you want to tease that you're working on right now? Yeah, I'm working on a few things. Kind of got me in a perfect storm. If you, gosh, if you want to find me on the internet, best way is Twitter, obviously. Uh, Smash Travis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S. Um, I write a lot for CG Mag online, uh, What to Watch and Pajiba. Um, I am now, very recently, the co-host of the Pod and the Pendulum podcast. Um, I'm stepping in for Jerry Smith, if you guys know him. Uh, he's taking a break. So we're doing uh, Sinister and French Extremity next, which I'm very nervous about because I don't know anything about French Extremity. And uh, Grim Magazine, a place that I have a column. Uh, the newest issue will be available for pre-order, or available for order on February 1st, which is really exciting. And they're also taking uh, applications for the pod squad. So if you're a new podcaster and want to work with some podcast mentors, we are taking those at Grim Magazine at anatomyofascream.com. And uh, yeah, if you like hearing me yell about legal stuff in movies, I actually wrote a comprehensive piece on Friday the 13th legal battle for Certified Forgotten. So if that's something you guys are interested in, you should check it oh, out. Nice. Well, Eric, you have you have anything else you'd like to add here? No, no, just, uh, you know, I'll ask you off mic, like, what's my best course of action to get on more juries? Mm-hmm. You know, get more of them jury summonses coming <laughs> no. my way. Oh, more juries. And more juries. They're not this. You're excluded now. Something you want <laughs> But, uh, you know, thanks. This, this was great. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Me too.